Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Serial Talker podcast. I'm Peter Von Gom, and today is part two of Death of a Deceiver, the Tina Brandon story, the trans young man who was murdered along with two friends back in the mid-1990s. His case became the inspiration for the Hollywood movie Boys Don't Cry. Let's get right into part two, the final part of this eye-opening story. Tina felt she had come so close to succeeding with Gina. It was like high school, the army, old girlfriends all over again. She had come this close to what she wanted. She was devastated and began calling Gina and showing up at her apartment at all hours. Gina didn't know what to do. She had been so enamored, but did this relationship make her a lesbian? It was in November, two months after Gina ended their relationship, that Tina fled Lincoln. She owed money to too many people, some of whom had threatened her physically. She didn't tell her family or Gina when she took up residence two hours away in tiny Humboldt, crashing at a farmhouse shared by two girls, friends of someone she had dated in Lincoln. The house rented for $100 a month and stood on a modest hill, shedding gray paint and fronted by a wooden step porch. Tina didn't stay single for long. In December, she began dating Lana Tisdell, whom she had met at a party in Fall City. Lana was a 19-year-old strawberry blonde who was as easily won as Tina's previous conquests. Other guys in this town don't give a girl flowers, Lana told her friends. For more than a week, the two were inseparable, sharing a couch at Lana's house every night, watching the country music television channel all day. Lana's mother was impressed by Tina's politeness and Lana's friends, including her former boyfriend John Lauder, 22, and Tom Nissen, 21, whom she's also dated. Even within economically anemic Falls City, families such as the Tisdells, Lauders, and Nissens were outcasts. Lana's mother, Linda Gutierrez, supported a family of six with a $356 disability check she received monthly as the result of a stabbing by a former husband. John Lauder lived with his mother, an older brother, two sisters, and three of his sister's children in a small three-bedroom house. To their peers in Fall City, they were marginalized, unpopular dropouts and derelicts. The pokey, backwoods character of Fall City blinded Tina to the narrow-mindedness she was up against there. For all their lack of sophistication, those in Tina's circle in Lincoln were permissive people, and quite a number had gay friends, black friends, and other associations considered vagaries in parts of rural America. But Tina's friends in Fall City were a different sort entirely. The beginning of the end came December 15th, when Tina arrived at the courthouse for a hearing on a charge of alcohol possession. She handed over her fake ID, but when it was discovered that she had forged a friend's check, Tina was jailed in a woman's cell. During Tina's eight days in jail, much of the town learned she was in a woman's cell. Lana visited her several times and naturally received the hermaphrodite story. Seeing Tina locked up and crying, Lana was distraught. Like the girls before her, she was confused by the issue of Tina's gender. She still cared for Tina and wanted to post her bail. Don't you dare, her mother said, and don't get any ideas about letting him in this house ever again. 
On December 23rd, Lana took a signed blank check her father had given her for a perm and cashed it in order to post Tina's $250 bail. Because Lana was under 21, she had to find somebody else to tender the money. She asked Tom Neeson, a gaunt fellow with a sparse mustache and light brown hair. The agreement, Neeson said later, was that Brandon was going to show her what sex he was. Indeed, Lana's friends and family were troubled by the way Lana was still drawn to Tina. Lana's mother suggested committing her daughter to a psychiatric unit for a month so she could drill it into her own mind that Brandon is actually a she. Although they were roughly the same age, John Lauder and Tom Neeson had met only recently through Lana. Tom had lived with his father in Mississippi, but at 13 moved in with his mother, Sharon, near Falls City. He had run away from home several times, and his mother sent him to Blue Valley Mental Health Center. This child's not right. I don't know what it is. He was never violent, except to himself. He shot himself in the shoulder and blamed someone else. If you saw him with all his clothes off, you'd think he'd been in an accident. There were scars all over his body. Three years ago, he cut his arm so bad with a butcher knife that they had to take him to a plastic surgeon. It was like he tried to saw it off. When he was 19, Tom married Candy Gibson, a girl he had known in high school. In 1991, Candy gave birth to a daughter they named Tiffany. The next year, Tom went to jail for arson. He had burned down a neighboring house and garage. Tom spent nine months in jail in Lincoln. He went back to Falls City in May 1993. Although Candy was pregnant with their second child, Tom soon started dating Missy Gutierrez, Lana Tisdale's 18-year-old aunt. Then he got involved with Lana. It was confusing, but Tom seemed happy with the arrangement. <laughs> of course he did. More of a follower, Tom yearned for the acceptance of a rake like John Lauder. John was boorish, with beady eyes and a wild mane of dark hair. His kindergarten teacher remembers him biting children and calling them motherfuckers. John was away from his family for most of his youth, in foster homes, boys town, even jail for stealing a car. But in 1990 at 18, he returned to Falls City and dated Lana off and on. Mostly it was John's temper that got him into trouble. He once ran seven guys out of Quickstop all by himself when they made fun of Lana's lisp. It had been years since he and Lana had gone out, but loyalty was his subscribed virtue. He told friends he would still do anything for her. On Christmas Eve, Tina was supposed to meet Lana at a party at Nisen's house, a white stucco box in the middle of Falls City. Although Tina had been out of jail for a day, Lauder and Nisen didn't think Lana knew that Tina was a woman. Lana said they were intent on proving it to her. Nisen, in a phone interview that took place from jail nine months later, maintained that Lana should have known what was to come. Lana denied having any knowledge of what Tom and John were going to do. At the party, Lana's eyes flitted around the living room. There were only about a dozen people there, some whiskey, some beer, a Christmas tree listing in the corner. Where the hell was Brandon? She wandered toward the bathroom and found Tina, Tom, and John standing next to the tub, 
poised for a showdown. Has he shown you? John asked Lana. Shown me what? She pretended not to know. What's in his pants? John said. I don't care what's in his pants, Lana said. It doesn't matter to me what's in his pants. In a single motion, Tom grabbed Tina and pulled her arms behind her back. John tugged her jeans and boxer shorts down around her ankles. Lana covered her eyes. Look at him, John said between gritted teeth. Look, or Tom is going to keep holding him like that. Lana turned her head and peeked between her fingers. John and Tom then marched Tina out of the bathroom and held her in front of the guests. Yep, it's a girl, Lauder announced. Ain't got no thing hanging down there, Neeson said. Soon, everyone, including John and Tom, filed out of the house and went to a bar called The Oasis. Lana walked with Tina to the nearby Stevenson Hotel, where Tina telephoned her roommates in Humboldt to come get her. John and Tom showed up at the hotel and told Lana that they had run into her mother, who wanted her home. Lana told Tina she'd be back in a second. Don't leave me, was the last thing Tina said to Lana that night. John and Tom took Tina back to Tom's house. It was now Christmas Day. According to sources in the Richardson County Attorney's Office, the following events then took place. With John Lauder looking on, Tom Neeson beat Tina. He struck her in the face, kicked her in the ribs, and stomped on her back. The chief of the Falls City Police, Norman Hemmerling, would later testify that Tina had a welt shaped like the sole of a boot on her back. According to Lana's friends, the two boys had told Tina that they were angry that she ripped off their friends. Lana had used her father's money to bail Tina out of jail, they said, and now Lana was in big trouble with her parents. John and Tom forced Tina into Lauder's car. All three of us were in the front seat, Nissen recalled. Brandon was between me and John. We started riding around with her, and I think John said he was going to have sex with her. Then Brandon said, Come on, guys, it doesn't have to be like this. The car got stuck in a ditch off the road. Then me and Brandon went across the road to this building that must have been an old schoolhouse or something, looking for bricks to put under the tires to get some traction. I came back and told John I could see a yard with a light on, and I went to get this farmer to tow us out. John Lauder concealed Tina in the back seat, while Nissan and the farmer towed the car back onto the road. Nissan drove further, finally turning off behind a Hormel pig-buying station. After he cut the engine, the boys attacked Tina in the back seat of the car. She put up a struggle. Then, Lauder and Nissan raped Tina. I went first, Nissan said, then John. I think it just sort of happened. Me and Brandon had a long conversation that evening in the bathroom. I told him, I don't have anything against you. If you had just been straight with me, I would have understood. Brandon started to feed me another line about how he was going to have a sex operation. John was really upset with the whole situation. Maybe he still wished he was going out with Lana. Perhaps, for John Lauder and Tom Neeson, it was the only retribution they could expect for the embarrassment they felt in being duped by an ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend. After all, it was just before Lana met Tina that she had been sleeping with Tom, and John dated Lana for years. At 6 a.m., Tina was at the Tisdale's door, barefoot and bleeding from her mouth. Her jeans were muddied up to the knees, 
her hands were dirty, and her undershirt, she always wore an undershirt, was missing. An ambulance was called to take Tina to the hospital. The phone rang in Tammy Brandon's apartment. She hoped it would be Tina. It was Christmas Day, and she hadn't seen or heard from her sister in weeks. She didn't even know where to find her these days. Tammy? Tina seemed to be hyperventilating. Calm down, Tammy said. Where are you? Tina told Tammy about her exodus to Humboldt, about Lana, about being raped. In a way, it taxed her heart more to talk about it than to endure it. Do you hate me for what I am? Tina asked. She was so ashamed. Her reputation now shot to hell in the worst way she could imagine. She didn't know if she could tell her mother. Let me call mom first, Tammy said. Tammy? Yeah. I didn't cry the whole time. I wasn't going to give them the satisfaction. Charles Lowe, Richardson County's sheriff, came on the case dogged by problems of his own. Lowe was being investigated by the Nebraska Attorney General for selling used cars without a dealer's license. A city clerk says the town had temporarily withheld two of his paychecks for inadequate service. According to the Brandons, Lowe was not much help to Tina. When he questioned Tina on the afternoon of Christmas Day, Lowe reportedly asked her, Why do you prefer females? And why did you take your pants down for those boys? Although a report from the Falls City Hospital confirmed that Tina had been raped, Lowe said he found inconsistencies in her statement. Initially, she claimed to have been raped once, then twice. And she said both John and Tom had beaten her, but then said it was just Tom. Deputy Sheriff Tom Olberding, a friend of Lauder's, saw Tina that day too. There was no doubt in my mind that it happened, he would say the following week. But you have to get statements from the other side. You can't just go running around arresting people. So, Olberding and Lowe didn't bring John and Tom in for questioning until three days later, on December 28th. The two men denied raping Tina. Tom admitted to Olberding that he had heard Tina say, Don't hurt me, when John got in the back seat of the car with her, and he conceded that clothing was removed, according to Olberding's sworn statement. Still, no arrests were made. Joanne Brandon felt helpless when she heard about Tina's rape just as she had when she learned that Tina had been molested as a child. But she also felt some relief just to hear from Tina and know that her daughter would still come to her in a time of crisis. All that week, Tina called home. She had a few things in Falls City to straighten out before she could come home, the alcohol and the forgery charges, and had a court hearing on the 31st. In the meantime, Tina said, she could be reached at the farmhouse in Humboldt. Tammy phoned the state patrol and a few times called Sheriff Lowe, asking why no arrests had been made. Tina wasn't safe with those boys at large, Tammy pleaded. They had told Tina they were going to silence her permanently if she talked about the rape. Back in Fall City, Lana Tisdale's sister had fought with her boyfriend, Philip Devine, who was visiting from out of town. Tina had seen Philip in Fall City on Thursday the 30th and suggested that he stay in the farmhouse with her and one of her roommates, Lisa Lambert, whom Philip also knew. It would be the three of them that night, plus Lisa's nine-month-old baby, Tanner. By Thursday, 
Sheriff Lowe's investigators decided that they had enough information on the rape case. They put reports calling for Nissan's and Lauder's arrests on the desk of County Attorney Douglas Mers. Mers said he was in court that afternoon and that the arrests would have to wait a day. Sometime before 1 a.m. on Friday, John Lauder had shown up at the house of his friend Eddie Bennett. Eddie was sitting in the living room. John went inside and stayed for less than 10 minutes. He knew Eddie kept a 38 revolver in his sock drawer. On New Year's Day, Eddie would report the gun missing. Around 1 a.m., John and Tom Neeson arrived at Lana Tisdale's house, staggering and slurring their words. John was wearing gloves, which he didn't normally do. Tom asked Lana's mother where Tina was. I think she's out in Humboldt came the reply. I'm going to put a knife in my hand and kill somebody, he said to Lana's sister. Then he looked at Lana and added, and you're next. Lana would later say it didn't occur to her to call the farmhouse and warn Tina, or to phone the cops. Lauder and Nissan drove to Humboldt. Basically, we said, let's go scare the shit out of them, Nissan said, describing the murders. From the way events took place, I would say John probably had a plan. There wasn't much conversation, Nissan said the murders took him by surprise, that he and John had not discussed them beforehand. This is the way it went, okay? John kicked in the door and we entered the residence. I found a light in the living room and turned it on. We entered Lisa Lambert's bedroom. Lisa had picked up the phone and was trying to call someone. John took the phone out of her hand and hung it up. There was a waterbed in Lisa's bedroom. Brandon was on the floor at the end of the bed, covered by a blanket, hiding. I pulled Brandon off the floor and sat on the edge of the bed. Lisa said to me, Tom, don't let him hurt me, because John had the gun. I was kind of surprised when she said my name. I'd never met her, but she knew me, because she had seen me around, I guess. I don't recall even a whimper from Brandon. Brandon was shot then, both times. I don't know how to put it in words, to be honest with you, Nissan said. If I had known they were going to be killed, I think I would have run the car off the road into a telephone pole on the way there, killed us instead. But I couldn't have just turned back. It was kind of a matter of pride. When asked about the knife that had punctured Tina's liver and her skull being crushed, Nissan replied, The report that her skull was crushed... That was caused by a bullet entering her head, he said. The stabbing, well, that was me. It just kind of happened all so fast. I couldn't tell if she was already dead. I honestly don't know. I was just caught up in the moment. Nissan said that after Lauder fired the gun, Lisa's baby began to cry. So I picked him up, trying to get him to calm down. And she said, Tom, will you give me the baby? And I said, yeah, and gave it to her. Then the gun was fired again, at Lisa. It hit her between the stomach and the chest, and she bled a lot. Then I remember I looked at John, and I didn't say anything to him. Then Lisa said to me, take my baby, promise he won't be hurt. So I put him back in the baby bed and gave him a bottle. Then Lisa was hit in the eye. So then I left the room and found Philip in another bedroom, and he started to holler. I didn't see anything, I won't tell anybody. Can't we work this out? At that point, it was obvious no one was going to walk out of there. 
and we went into the living room and Philip sat down on the couch. Then the gun was fired, twice. I thought about my kids and my wife. I do believe that if I had to do it over again, I would have stood in front of Lisa and taken her bullet. Brandon didn't deserve to die either. But I don't feel real guilty about killing her. I think she probably would have been killed by someone anyway. I've met people in prison who knew her in Lincoln. She had people out to get her. People said they knew people who wanted to do that to her too. But when I think about stabbing her, it pretty much does me in. With Philip, I'd say I'm sorry he's gone. I feel pretty bad about just being involved in it. My biggest problem is with Lisa. She was a mother. I think about her little boy growing up. Someday he'll find out that somebody murdered his mom. I'd imagine it could cause quite a bit of anger growing up without a mom. Anger will make a person do terrible things. He could take some of the same paths I did. And I'd hate to see someone end up like me because of something I took part in. The three bodies were discovered several hours later on the morning of December 31st by Lisa's mother, who had worried when she heard that Lisa had not shown up for work. It was three years to the day since Tina's sweet, nervous date at Holiday Skate World, her very first appearance as a boy. At 5 p.m. on December 31st, local police pulled up to Tom Nissen's house and found Tom and John Lauder in the front room, playing cards. Eddie Bennett's gun and a folding knife were found the next day on the frozen Namaha River, just off Highway 73. Ballistics tests proved that the bullets used in the murders came from that gun. Lauder was charged with murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault, and Nissen was charged with murder, kidnapping, and aiding and abetting the assault. Both men went on trial in the early months of 1995. Nissen was given life in prison. Lauder, the death penalty. Tina was buried in her favorite clothes, a black rugby shirt, matching cowboy hat and cowboy boots, beside her father, Patrick Brandon, at Lincoln Memorial Park Cemetery. At her funeral, mourners who knew her as Tina sat mostly on the left-hand side of the aisle. Those who knew her as a boy sat on the right. After the funeral, Tina's former fiancé, Gina Bartu, followed Lana Tisdale's car to a Long John Silver's. Something had been on her mind since she had learned of Tina's death. Did Brandon ever tell you about his friends in Lincoln? Gina asked Lana. Not really, Lana said except for this one girl and how much he still loved her. Gina drove away, feeling both better and worse than she ever had in her entire life. If only she had stayed with Tina, she thought. Tina wouldn't have gone to Humboldt and wouldn't have been raped and murdered. I always hoped that if he'd worked things out for himself, Gina said, maybe someday we could still get married. The relationship was way too good to be true, but I don't regret one bit of it. He made me fall in love with him on the inside. Today, dozens of girls who knew or dated Tina leave flowers and notes at her grave. Wow, what a tragic story. How sad. There is something in this story that I left out 
that I wanted to address at the end. And it's really relevant, especially today, with the whole LGBTQ movement and how this movement, had it been 20 years earlier, we quite possibly would not have had this tragedy. So keep in mind, this took place back in the mid-1990s, and this story was written in 95. And there's a part that explains about transsexuality. Because at that time, it was not really a household word. Transsexuality, a predisposition to identify physically with the opposite sex, is a, quote, largely uncharted phenomenon, though it is not uncommon. Roughly 1 in 50,000 people is diagnosed as transsexual, and recent reports indicate that it is almost as likely among women as it is among men. Today, in the U.S., nearly 2 million people identify as transsexual, according to one study. This story could have had a much, much different outcome had it taken place in 2021. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Serial Talker podcast. If you like these kinds of podcasts, please consider subscribing to the channel. And if you'd like to support the channel, you can always buy me a cup of coffee. Those details are in the description of this podcast. If you have a compelling true story you would like me to consider reading, by all means, send it on to me. The email address is also in the description. Thanks always for listening. We'll see you again for next week's Serial Talker podcast. Bye for now.